0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our 7investing podcast. I'm 7investing founder and CEO, Simon Erickson. The space race is go for launch. Between the miniaturization of satellites and reusable rockets, we're now enabling entrepreneurs to explore creative new ideas, such as satellite internet and even space tourism. Today's episode, we'll be republishing a conversation that I had with ARC Invest analysts, James Wang and Sam Khoris, originally recorded in the summer of 2020. We hope that this conversation will share some insight that we have in this space and also give you a few investing ideas to put on your radar.
1: Um, I should give our listeners some context because it sounds like um, you know, normally it's us uh, people talking about how ARC invests and then here we're talking about you, so how we cross paths. I put up a Twitter poll saying, hey, who should we talk to next on the Um, ARC FYI podcast and uh, like something like 100 people responded Um, and uh, I think your name was recommended strongly um, as someone to talk about uh, kind of what's happening with space and that's why we have Sam Chorus uh, also uh, joining us today. Um, You've spent, it's so interesting that space was not really an investable idea for, for really a long time. Um, and now it's it's all of a sudden interesting again. So we're really here to talk about kind of um, what's happening um, um, in the world of kind of space and and uh, launch vehicles, as well as um, software, which is something that you've also written about and something that I've been spending increasing uh, time uh, covering. So let's start with um, with space. How did you get interested in this? Um, what uh, I guess are your who have you talked to, and what do you think are the key trends and technology changes that's happening in the space industry.
0: Right. So, so first of all, James, I'm from Houston. So we've got NASA right in my backyard. Maybe that had something to do with the interest in space, like you mentioned right up front there. Uh, But it is fascinating. I think it's just something that's captured our imagination for decades. And I guess one of the interests that I have in this field right now, uh, being everything that we just talked about, about innovation is you just got see, you've just seen such a reduction in the costs of getting to outer space, right? A, an order of magnitude decrease in launching payloads into outer space. And what is that going to mean? And that's kind of, I think, the broader conversation that you, I, and Sam can get into here, is what will private enterprises and, and investable companies uh, getting more and more involved in this space race, aside from just government defense contractors, mean for individual investors like us? I think that's very, very exciting right now. You also asked who I've talked to lately. I talked to an uh, ex-NASA astronaut, Sandy Magnus. Uh, Dr. Sandy Magnus spent some time up on the International Space Station. Uh, By the way, she said the view is fantastic up there, as I would expect she would. We just talked to the creators of the first space-themed ETF recently, uh, which is investing in companies that derive the majority of their revenue from space-based operations. And just also a couple local contacts here that I've been keeping in touch with for years. I, I think this is one of the most interesting fields uh, that is not on a whole lot of investors' radar right now. And that interests me.
2: It is, it is interesting. Um, yeah, as both of you said, right? You got the cost reductions. You have the private side, uh, right? And the history of space has been, for like the last two decades plus, you know very government driven um but now we're at this point where it's seeing an increase in government interest and an increase in uh commercial interest which is an interesting uh tailwind for all of this to happen and you know one of the things you said declining launch costs absolutely true i think another thing that people underappreciate um who aren't as familiar with the spaces you know the cost of a satellite used to be far more expensive than the cost of the rocket itself. But you have the miniaturization of technology. You've got pretty much cell phone, uh, smartphone components that can now make a satellite. And so you have this huge cost decline in the satellite as well. Um, When you're talking to these uh, people and companies, what are some of the most exciting opportunities that uh, come, come to your radar?
0: I'm taking that as a space space pun right there, and <laughs> on your radar. Um, I think that really the general theme is that this is an industry that builds upon itself. And it started, as you just mentioned, as kind of a government fascination, uh, funding for contracts for projects, right? Getting to the moon that would be something that NASA would fund, the Defense Department would fund. And this is something that's kind of over those decades helped companies figure out how to efficiently build rockets or efficiently build satellites or take that research that's been done from all of this funding and build things from it. Right. Uh, GPS, the global positioning system was developed by the air force in the seventies. And here we are 45 years later and it's delivering food for Uber eats to us. Right. um, um Navigation and timing too, right? Positioning navigation and timing. I mean, this is something that's controlling all of the bank transactions across the world right now that's built off of satellite technology that was originally kind of government funded. And now, like you also mentioned, Sam, the government still has a military interest in space. We've got Space Force now uh, that is an independent branch of of the military that's focused on space-based military activities. We've seen China putting rovers on the moon in the last couple of months, right? And so maybe the US is very interested in in doing more things like that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think all of these kind of stack upon themselves. Just like GPS was something really cool that the development that came out 45 years ago that has now got great commercial opportunities. I think lower launch costs, coupled with smaller satellites, coupled with a renewed interest from the government in outer space, all stacked together. To what we're going to start seeing as some pretty awesome commercial opportunities.
1: Can I ask the non-specialist question for both of you here? Um, lower launch cost seems to be the uh, the, the uh, what's happening here. What is? I mean, I can understand SpaceX certainly um, should help with that, given that their vehicle is reusable. But SpaceX is is one company, and the, you know they, they don't single-handedly determine the cost. Uh, has has cost just come down? Uh, as a whole? And if so, what what's the technology enabler for for other people's launch platforms to be coming down in cost? Uh, so
2: I'd, I'd say the first thing there is competition, right? Like when SpaceX first offered the Falcon 9, the cost that it came in at was not a revolutionary cost. That's what it cost uh, inflation adjusted for, you know, what the ULA uh, was offering, you know, 15 years prior but you had 15 years of monopoly and bloating costs. And so SpaceX came in and they said, all right, let's reset this. You know, we're not a bloated company. Now there's competition. Then you have the reusability. So that's coming into play. And then there's also another segment starting, which is, um, these small, uh, rocket companies. And so because you have the, uh, reduction in size of components, similar to the smartphone, you know, right? the evolution of cell phone technology shrinking, um, the weight and cost of the satellite shrinks. And so you can have smaller rockets send useful payloads up.
1: I see, I see. Yeah. So,
0: I would agree, but, James, too. Just that, I mean, like even Rideshare, which is something else that SpaceX is offering where you can kind of piggyback on their rockets that are launching, you can get a satellite into space for less than a million dollars now because of, like you, like Sam just mentioned, increased competition. SpaceX is at something, at, what is it, $1,500 a kilogram for payloads? It's, like I said, at an order of magnitude lower than, than what we've been used to seeing. So that's just unlocking new commercial opportunities.
1: Was ride-sharing a thing before SpaceX? Do you know who came up with that?
2: Um, I don't know specifically, no. Um, But it it is, I think, enabled by the emergence of small sats, right? You're no longer sending these huge geostationary satellites that are just in one spot over the earth. People are sending up smaller and smaller satellites where now it's actually possible to have more than one payload uh, per rocket.
1: That makes sense. Um, GPS has been such an important foundational infrastructure, and we invested a lot in that. Is there, is there any sense that uh, we're doing similar things now, like we're, some, there's infrastructure building, maybe in the form of ground stuff, or maybe in, the stu- in, in terms of um, uh, uh, satellites and rockets? Um, are we doing foundational work that we, that, such that we can expect dividends uh, over you know, a number of years?
0: For uh, GPS specifically or other foundational technologies?
1: Space in general, like whether launch vehicles or or otherwise?
0: I mean, some of the perspectives I've heard on this has just been imaging and sensing, right? You've kind of had Google Maps, which is freely available for most people because Google is an advertising supported company that has just kind of unlocked a lot of different imaging opportunities, And there's also, in addition to that, you know, in addition to looking at what's going on in Earth, there are other opportunities to sense what's going on also out in the atmosphere and outer space. And so you've got uh, one company that I think is interesting, James, that's doing this is called Black Sky Global, which is able to monitor weather patterns across the world so that they can optimize shipping routes. So if you're shipping things across the ocean uh, or air, I mean, this this is something that can really help. Um, do that more efficiently so you don't have problems that arise with those. They're also doing it for kind of monitoring weather. I mean, it's really been interesting to see, especially right now with these um, coronavirus, to see the weather, weather patterns and pollution patterns and kind of all that stuff that we don't think about too much. Uh, but it is important if you're looking at predicting weather, especially in times of a crisis or a hurricane or something like that, monitoring what's going on out there, having people make predictions on what that's going to look like. And I mean, even, even surveillance, I mean, people are getting more creative on seeing how many cars are parked outside of Walmart to figure out how their quarterly numbers are going to be, right? If you can subscribe to something that's not a government project, but it's actually a commercial opportunity to start seeing things around the world uh, and have it be not too invasive to people's privacy, something like that could have some interesting opportunities we haven't even thought about yet, I think.
2: I also think it's uh, interesting when you think about, uh, I think now it's kind of shifted where the investment isn't necessarily coming, you know, in a huge part from the government, Uh, right? You need a pretty healthy risk appetite for space investment. Um, But the government is still a huge uh, end customer for a lot of things. And so, you know, a good example of this is uh, there's a company, Arian that's doing satellite-based flight tracking, right? And so, you know, they're doing tests now with the FAA and other um, organizations. But it's like, if they can prove that this works well, then that's a huge improvement over the existing uh, technology stack. And, you know, it's like the Malaysia flight that went missing. If you had satellite tracking, you know, nothing goes missing because you're tracking it over water. Uh, It's not self-reported locations. And so even if the investment isn't necessarily coming from the government, the government can be there as this end customer to uh, design for.
0: And James, I think at the end of the day, this is probably good news for you because it just brings a whole lot more data points for those machine learning and artificial intelligence companies. Yeah,
1: I mean, I would love that. It just, but Sam, you, it's so funny you should mention Malaysian Airlines incident. I never thought about the, the the simple fact that why couldn't we just see it unless there's cloud cover or something. Um, but in, in even in those cases, it the, the, at cruising altitudes, you typically fly above the weather. So um, what you're really saying is, right now, we're not at the point where we're actually observing every part on Earth and recording it. Um, is there right. a point you get to that level?
2: Yes, we're, we're underway right now. So uh, the history of air traffic controls, pretty interesting. But the, the general gist of it all is, you know, right now it's pretty much you're tracked over land and then you're set on a path and you self-report where you are when you're over the ocean, right? And so that's why, you know, if you look at flight paths, there's like a corridor over the Atlantic Ocean um, and planes have to be spaced out by you know, distance and height, uh, and only a set amount of capacity can go through that because you need these safety, uh, distances because you're not a hundred percent sure where any one plane is. Right. And that's why if you're over the ocean, um, you know, and you go down, you'd look at the last reported location, but, you know, there's this, uh, shift to ADS-B for tracking and, uh, if you were to satellite track every plane, you know you'd have real-time location everywhere over the globe. Mm. Wow, that's exciting. Um, what mm. do you I would like to know uh, Simon, a big a big debate in our office is on space tourism what is what's your take there we've We have uh, very mixed opinions. I'd say.
0: Well, last I saw, Sam, the tickets for Virgin Galactic were $250,000 a pop. So if you're going to buy one, make sure you get the window seat. <laughs> uh, it's, it's right now only for, for a very select market that can afford that kind of ticket price. Um, I think the thing that got Shamath Palapatiya interested in investing in this company and bringing it public was the idea that he's going to get those costs down pretty significantly as they have more pilots and uh, more aircraft that can, that can facilitate this. I think it's, um, it's too early, in my opinion. I think that Virgin is still a super risky investment at this point uh, just because the market, they, they're not doing any, any flights right now. They've been promising for years that it's going to be this year and then a year goes by and then it's another year. And uh, they do have a lot of people that are really excited about going up and doing that. But I think the, the enthusiasm uh, should be tapered just a little bit. These flights, how long are they? I think they're 45 minutes, right, Sam?
2: Uh, yeah, so that's interesting. So you have uh, Virgin Galactic with the 45-minute um, flight to an hour, but it's a shorter period where you're actually, you know, in space, some of it's you know, the ride up, ride down. And I think blue origin is like a five to 15 minute because there is just straight up, straight down.
1: And the Virgin uh, is more of a like a ballistic trajectory?
2: Uh, well, you know, they're taking off with a plane uh. and then they're dropping the, the rocket and then going. So, yeah, so, it's more more of
1: a plane type design. Um, does the Virgin platform, would that enable point to point transportation at all?
2: So I think that's the that's the interesting thing, right? When we're talking no longer about space tourism, we're talking about point to point travel. Um, one, I think this is further, even further out. Uh, but yeah, having something that could land on a runway is incredibly useful, right? You already have all of the infrastructure that exists. Um, you don't need to deal with, you know, when you see the incredible SpaceX video of uh, those two boosters landing simultaneously, right? You get. Two sonic booms going off in succession, right? So if you can avoid that, then that makes the infrastructure and logistics of point-to-point travel far easier.
1: But wouldn't wouldn't the Virgin aircraft also also have a sonic boom problem? It's it's uh, it's still going through the sound barrier, no?
2: Um, in theory, you could do it elsewhere and glide in more like an airplane.
1: So it wouldn't be local. Okay, I see. At the point of landing, right. Right?
2: Um, Simon, when you think of imaging companies, uh, it seems like there's imaging given that it is the low hanging fruit. It seems like there's so many startups operating in there in that space. Um, What what do you look for that would differentiate one from another?
0: Uh, I mean, that's a tough one to answer. I think for me, Sam, I mean, you're right. It is kind of at the end of the day, it's like how high a fidelity of an image do you need? And then what are you using that for? It seems like it's going to be a subscription based product that makes sense there or something like like Google that's supported elsewhere by advertising or something like that. I don't think you can make a ton of money um, charging for super high resolution images for something like that. But I mean, something else that could be subscription-based too is, is that's kind of how we've seen so many of those satellite products go also, right? Sirius, XM, if you're broadcasting music, um, something like Dish Network. I mean, consumer TV is the number one consumer application uh, for satellites today. We've even talked about satellite internet. I mean, you know that's something that Elon Musk has got a lot of interest in for SpaceX because it's, quote-unquote, the low-hanging fruit for him. You've got to kind of build iteratively and incrementally um, to make money so you don't go bankrupt we've seen one web really having some problems with that this past month but if you do have something that's producing cash flows that's serving a demand right now maybe it's it's high speed internet uh, or at least kind of a complement to the existing internet infrastructure that we have doing the backhaul whatever it might be that you could complement with satellites versus just building more towers and or laying more
2: fiber I do like the uh, Elon Musk quote recently saying, uh, "There has yet to be a satellite company that has not gone bankrupt while putting satellites into orbit." So, obviously, very very high risk uh, business plan. Um, I do think right the broadband opportunity for underserved people in the U.S. is a attractive first market. Um, one thing that we're still and I'd be interested if you have. Uh, heard anything about this or your thoughts on it, right? The, the last piece to the puzzle, you have the declining costs of the rockets, the cheaper satellites, uh, but it's the end user terminal that actually connects the individual to the satellites uh, is still the mystery component in cost declines for this equation to, to work out.
0: The antennas you're
2: talking about, Sam,
0: or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I don't, I don't think I have a good answer for that one either
2: yeah so we'll still we'll still wait and see you know Spacex seems to believe that they they have something that will be promising uh to the end consumer end affordable. Uh, so and affordable so I think that's
0: yeah I mean, and and like when you're talking about consumers too, I mean, how about the companies that will just benefit from this that might not be directly participating in it right we've We've talked about SpaceX and they're putting up satellites and stuff, but I'm also thinking in terms of companies like Facebook and Google who really have an interest in getting half of the world's 8 billion people connected to high-speed internet. And even though that might not make sense right now, if you're tr- thinking about it in terms of just, you know, how much will people pay for, for internet that, or something like that if you're in a remote location, a company like Facebook has a huge interest in, in that. Or a company like Google has a huge interest in getting four, almost 4 billion people that don't have high-speed internet today hooked up as quickly as possible into their platforms. And so maybe you've got some kind of, you know, subsidy or something coming from these multi-billion dollar or trillion dollar now tech companies, um, just because they really see the benefit of something like this. You know, we, we saw Google try this with a fiber experiment, you know, years ago. They'd wanted to get wireless internet as kind of a shot across the bow of the telecom companies, just to say, okay, if you're not going to build it and not going to provide internet for these people, we're going to try it out ourselves. And ultimately, a lot of those projects really Sam got put on hold. It didn't make economic sense. But again, if you're talking in terms of billions of people through satellites versus, you know, putting up wireless towers in locations across the United States or the world, something like that, I think, could get a lot more interesting, uh, particularly as we're seeing those developing economies growing really, really quickly right now.
2: I think, yeah, that's a great point, pulling in these other companies as well. And right, you got you had Google Fiber, but you also have Project Loon where with this, uh, the balloons, weather balloons, providing internet. Uh, I think really interesting is Amazon announced their plan to launch 3,000. I think it was roughly 3,000 satellites, right? That's not a Blue Origin move. That's an Amazon move. And you have Amazon who's partnering with Iridium, um, providing AWS capabilities and plugins through Iridium satellite network uh, for, you know, iot applications you know so these these giant companies are also very interested in this space
1: and,
0: and is it a platform you know it, what is the space economy with these CubeSats that are four inches wide that are being blasted up on spacex's rockets and all of a sudden are functional i mean is this a platform that consumers can start to build things off of I mean, James, is this the next geo cities where instead of us all building our own web pages that have goofy pictures, we're able to use these tiny satellites to do things as consumers? I mean, it's a fascinating idea. I don't I don't see the opportunity for that in the next year or two, but something like that, as this becomes more accessible, you've got more access, you've got lower costs, you've got a bunch of people that are interested in doing interesting things out there. This has kind of gone down uh, from government super expensive projects to companies that could afford to do those things to the consumer market now, it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out I think over the next decade, two decades.
2: And then you know right now we've just been talking about orbital space, right obviously there's the whole suborbital uh, domain as well. and you know this is one of those things when when we look at those imaging companies, right? why get a why put a satellite up and get imaging through there? if, you know, maybe an autonomous drone could get it for even cheaper, right? So there's, it's it's an interesting type of dynamic between uh, the types of things drones can do versus what satellites can do. Um, so I think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. Uh, and then also, you know, I don't think we need to go into too much depth right now, but just all the business opportunities in that suborbital space as well with drone deliveries. Um, you know, I think those saw... Pretty pretty solid adoption with coronavirus uh, in China, delivering some some goods via drone.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, how about the service component for all of this? Right, anytime you have a human being doing anything in space, it's orders of magnitude more expensive. But if you've got autonomous robots fixing things that are broken on the satellites, great opportunity for there. If you've got something that'll help you avoid collisions. With this space debris or other satellites that are floating around out there, great opportunity for that i mean this is there's going to be this whole sub industry of just taking care of the things that are up in space because you 've got to protect your investment protect your your business just like you want to keep the internet
1: running if you're an internet based company today that's totally true you take any IT uh, kind of market and the the revenues for services is, is at least as large, if not larger than the revenues for software and, and hardware um, but I want to just kind of circle back on the uh, um, kind of internet broadband through satellite and, and really ask, kind of, we've seen, you, you, you talked about all the, uh, both of you have talked about all the kind of alternate ways of delivering internet that's failed. Um, and ultimately, if you look at what is gaining momentum at mass um, in terms of just uh, taking over how people use the internet, it is really just cellular, right? It's gone from um, very uh, quaint of two and a half G to three G that's sort of usable and LTE. Basically we're now at the point where you can get all your internet through LTE. And with 5G, the last kind of bit of congestion you would get in, in denser areas, theoretically would get resolved. So I come from kind of the mobile world of looking at things. And I guess my question back to you guys is why wouldn't mobile win in this battle, given just its sheer scale technology maturity and the fact that all the devices are especially the most important computer of the phone is designed to interface directly with the 5g signal whereas if you have an internet delivered if you have a satellite delivered um via um, uh, internet your phone can't talk to the satellite it's it's still a pizza box attached to a window that's the very much the you know seems like an old broadband kind of perspective on the internet Sam.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll take it. I think that's, I mean, that is a great question and the biggest risk, really. I mean, that's the history of satellite development, right? You go back to the 90s and they said, this is what we're going to do. And then right there, are cost overruns because giant satellites and outsourcing. And then, right, you had mobile come along and uh, that was way cheaper. So I think, you know, there is that existing risk. Um, the other question is, you know what is the cost to get to these underserved customers and is it worth it for a telco uh currently right and so you know even in, i think in the US it's like 42 million people don't have access to broadband internet
1: like fixed line or yeah okay uh um, access to LTE signals presumably uh
2: i I need to double check, but I imagine they do have some coverage. Um, But, you know, you can imagine if you're trying to do something relatively high speed or valuable, that LTE may not cover those needs from a business
1: standpoint. Simon, your thoughts?
2: It's a good question,
0: James. I, I don't think that I have a really good answer for it right now, other than the fact that it's the same equation that we've been trying to solve for decades, really. Of uh, If you're in remote areas, I mean, yeah, there's 4 billion people out there that aren't getting high-speed internet, but they're not contributing to the digital economy that most of the developed world is, but they don't have a ton of money to immediately start spending on things. Um, So, how does the financial equation make sense? You know, do you want to... um, Kind of have it be advertising based or, or insights based where you're asking those people questions about what they need and then you try to get services in their hands. Um, it seems like a lot of Africa right now is, is doing cellular based transactions like you just mentioned. So maybe you don't need a, a high speed Internet for something like that. But we'll see. Maybe it has something to do with um, with video or something that would require um you know, more bandwidth and, and lower latency, but I don't think that we, we have a clear answer for it
1: just yet. Yeah. I mean, coming from looking at the mobile world where we're going to every, there's such huge momentum for 5G happening right now. And 5G is going to, you know, over time 10X, 100X your bandwidth and reduce latency by an order of magnitude. Like that is pretty hard to beat, I'd say, as a, as a moving target for, for uh, internet delivery. Um, I have a question, um, So 5G is even a
2: uh, smaller coverage area, right? It requires more capital investment per geography served. Is that correct?
1: Um, 5G, you need more um, antennas, like in terms of city areas, so that you can actually get that increased bandwidth. Right. Um, so, don't you think, it, like, Being being in Montana now, right? So it's like in
2: the most remote areas, like you have 3G still, right? Then in most areas, you have 4G. And then it's like in cities, that's where 5G will be. And those will just continue to expand out and out, right? So it's a question of can satellites leapfrog the expansion outwards?
1: Yeah. The thing is 5G doesn't stand on its own. It's basically on top of 4G. So mm. in, in reality, what will happen is you're going to be, if you're in the kind of outer skirts um, where 5G hasn't deployed, it will just default back to 4G. Um, and if not 3G. So it's, it's not like this cliff, um, but it, de- it, it, you get basically different levels of surface depending on mm. how much um, infrastructure has been built out. Uh, but for areas that, that are built out and 5G is not also one monolithic um, uh, like band uh uh, frequency it has the the higher frequencies that's um uh that's that's still not really happening yet that that the the the, the new high frequency um uh, channels are really easy to be to to have interference from trees and, and 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 uh just obstruction so it's it's not very that's why it's not economical you need very narrow kind of signals to 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 point directly at the devices, whereas the lower frequencies in the megahertz, you can it just kind of radiates evenly everywhere, it goes through walls. It's the same basically band as kind of the, the, the 4G. Mm. Um, so that stuff will still work over long distance. You just can't serve as many users, certainly not every user using you know, 4K Netflix. Um, but once we have the high frequency rolled out, you'll need a lot of antennas especially for kind of metro areas. But in theory, that would deliver basically as much internet as you can consume today, um, completely wireless. Makes sense. I mean, James, Uh, the
2: the
0: obvious solution is is that everyone in the world needs to be watching Netflix all the time, which is already taking up 14% of the world's bandwidth, is what I've seen. So if we have Netflix everywhere in the world, um, that's the obvious use case for satellite, in my opinion. Just
1: kidding, for those who can't see my face right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're already doing that. I think people are uh, pretty, if not Netflix, and certainly YouTube and, and uh, some of the local content that's very popular with folks. Um, Simon, you also write about uh, kind of what's happening in the way of cloud and software. Um, what has caught you eye in there? Uh, you know, software and cloud are not New ideas—they've they, been around since you know at least Salesforce. This time, two thousand four, its IPO. Um, what uh, I guess is new and interesting today—that's that's that you're showcasing to your to your newsletter subscribers.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's the same thing. I, I would think that you see also, James. That there's just a lot more information that needs to be understood. And companies are starting to get a handle on that better and have better tools to to start harnessing that. I mean, cloud and AI, those are big topics. Those are two beer conversations and definitely another podcast that we could have on those. But I do think that it's still the adoption, at least for definitely for small businesses, is limited. Uh, The world's getting smarter about the information that it has, and it's getting a larger peripheral vision of what the information that it has and I think that my overall takeaway is that we're getting better at understanding that and companies are starting to hire data scientists to
1: make sense of it. Um, if the must-have applications a few years ago uh, were Salesforce and Workday and, and ServiceNow, um, what's kind of the critical new use cases uh, that these new software companies are, are uh, unveiling to the world?
0: I mean, I think a lot of it is just making it easier to use, Right you've seen certain companies just put um, information in people's hands and the tools to get in, that in front of their hands as quickly and, and accessibly as possible. So you don't have to have a PhD or a graduate degree in data science to make sense of the information that you have. So to me, to make this the, the must have the, uh, the, the, the new category is going to be, you know, you we're spending all of our time in Excel right now. We're spending all of our time collecting data and the majority of it is is just gathering it and seeing what's useful to us. I think that the most important thing is getting quick access to reliable data so you can make a decision off of it rather than the 30 of the 40 hours a week that you're spending right now just trying to find what it is you're looking for.
1: Which companies do you think is doing the best job in making that happen?
0: I have some disclosure uh, reasons that I can't, I can't mention the one that I would like to right now, but I do believe there are publicly traded equities that are addressing that.
1: I see. Um, Well, which technologies do you think uh, are are getting adoption if you talk about maybe software standards um, or database standards?
0: Well, okay, so so for databases, I mean, we've seen cloud-based databases grow incredibly quickly recently, right? Uh, MongoDB has gotten, what is it, 50 million downloads on the free side of things, replacing kind of those traditional databases like an Oracle or something like that. Uh, so I think that's very interesting. This whole open source movement, uh, where you've got developers experimenting with things and then coming back and saying, Hey, I need this level of service and reliability. Uh, and I'm willing to pay this much money for that. Uh, that whole software as a service platform as a service infrastructure as a service, uh, coupled with an open source software, I, I think is pretty interesting right now.
1: Um, for Mongo and others, do you think there, there's a lot of debate on whether free kind of uh, software companies based on open source can really build a viable business model? Like, what, what's your take on that?
0: I mean, there's things that you need if you're running a business that you will pay money for, right? You, reliability and, and service was kind of the early um, business case for cloud computing right? This was something that, that Rackspace figured out really early, that, that customer service and that reliability was was very important. And so, yes, I think that um, the open source, just in the the idea of putting the code out there and letting people tinker with it is is interesting. I do still think that once you start using those tools um, for a business that needs reliability and service, I mean, back to the, the thing we were just talking about with space, you need to have something that's going to Make sure that your business is, is continuing twenty four seven, and so I think it does make sense, James. I like the the freemium idea of you you play around with it for free, and once you're ready to start um, doing something commercially with this, we'll offer something else that's very important, and that will al- allow you to to build on top of that.
1: When you um, write to your investors, right now we're in the middle of the coronavirus uh, kind of uh, mid April now. Um, What kind of conversations are you having um, from your readers? What are people um, worried about and what do they want to know most from you?
0: Biggest question right now is, is what do you think is going to happen once this coronavirus either goes away or we aren't thinking about it every single day right now? Uh, So long-term, what is the permanent change to whatever market it is we're talking about? Um, and and how are you investing to capitalize on that and there's a bunch of trends that we see kind of developing and james something that i've mentioned a lot that we published to our site at seven investing is that it seems like a lot of crises crises have permanent changes that come from them right so the dot com i mean 2001 so much of the internet was based off of traffic and website hits and advertising and then there was kind of this transition right where we said okay Uh, It's not just all about advertising anymore. We need to start to shift to subscriptions and that's a difficult change. That's a difficult transition for a lot of companies, but that was something that was necessary. Uh, We talk about the banks and the financial crisis of 2008. All of a sudden you start seeing these alternative lenders, right? A firm, uh, others that are looking at different data points that weren't captured in those bank loans from before all of a sudden you have a new way of, of business, small businesses uh, that didn't have the check marks from before to get a loan can now have access to capital and they're at better performing loans than they were before that even the big banks were making. Or how about consumers in, in other countries, right? If you're a farmer uh, in a rural area and you don't have a whole lot of interaction with banks because you've been paying cash, but there's a way to see that you pay back whoever is providing you credit over time, you're contributing to the global economy. You're probably a low risk loan that wasn't in the system before. And now there are ways you can start seeing things like that. So there's different ways of looking at data that I think came out of that financial crisis. The interesting one will be from the coronavirus that we're talking about right now that everybody's asking about is, okay, are are companies going to bring all their employees back to work? You know, Are we just going to have a lot of uh, Montana-based employees calling in and and doing work remotely or are we going to, to need to have everybody back in the office and how is that going to change the structure of jobs that we have or is the nature of work itself going to change you know I think something like that is very interesting I think our healthcare system is very interesting right now too because we saw such a spike in the volume of patients going to hospitals that they couldn't possibly keep up with it so how do you bring some of those non-critical patients that don't need to be in the ER at that moment? How can you start doing telehealth appointments for stuff like that? How can you get them in front of a doctor that can, that can treat something that's not serious? And then how can they get access to either the diagnostics or the prescriptions or whatever it is that they need as a follow-up from that appointment in a way that doesn't bring you into the hospital, because things like this really show us, yes, the hospitals definitely have their place in society, but when there's a spike and something like this happens, we can't have it that every time this comes around, we have hospitals that aren't able to handle everything. So I've done a lot of thought about those lately. Um, I do think that there's probably going to be some permanent market changes. And like I said, I think that the healthcare industry is going to be one of those.
1: Are there um, companies you would, you would mention that, that are helping kind of catalyze those change and making those possible?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's all going to be objective, right? And, and proactive, I think, has got to be the answer for healthcare. You see whatever diagnostic company that could detect an early stage cancer or an earlier stage cancer. I mean, we spend $100 billion across the world on cancer treatments right now the drugs and the treatment routines that people go through. But if you can catch something at stage one, instead of stage four, the five year survival rates of a patient goes up dramatically. So I think that something like oncology has got not only a huge cost saving, um, but also a huge benefit to society because patients would be living longer from something like that. And there's a lot of publicly publicly traded companies, um, Based on sequencing technology that I know you guys know through Illumina and and everything that they've built for the past two decades that are now able to detect uh, at very, very high levels of accuracy, different types of diseases and cancers. That's one that's definitely on my radar.